Thanks so much. Great to be here with you this evening. And we're carrying on a series around the Jesus Manifesto. And this is a series of teaching based in Isaiah 61, but also linking in passages from Mark's Gospel to sort of give an illustration to how Jesus outworks uh, the prophet's words. So we're going to read tonight from two passages beginning in Isaiah 61, just verses 2b to 3. It says, To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And the second reading is from Mark 5, verses 25 to 34. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned round in the crowd and asked, who's touched my clothes? You see people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you're asking, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who'd done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Isaiah's promise that the Spirit of God would comfort all who mourn and provide for all who grieve is something that's quite often lost to us in our society, largely, I believe, because we have such a narrow view of what constitutes legitimate grief. When we hear the word mourn, we often think about people who are wearing black and maybe standing by a graveside, or maybe civilians in a war zone whose house has just been struck by a bomb. Now, these are clear illustrations of, of grief, but they aren't the whole picture. Over my 15 years as a, a vicar, I've stood at many gravesides at some of the most tragic uh, and sad funerals you can imagine. And yet, even there, I see people trying to hold in their emotions, desperate not to cry, desperate not to show any perceived weakness. Yet, despite our narrow definition of grief, and our resistance to mourning, many of us will be carrying significant griefs in our life today. It may be that you're silently mourning behind your bright smile. The woman in Mark 5 was grieving. And now most obviously she was grieving 12 years of menstrual bleeding. But as with many of the griefs that we experience, there are griefs behind these griefs. She was mourning not being able to have children. She was mourning complete social exclusion. She was mourning not being able to attend the temple because of the prohibitions from Leviticus 15.13. She was also mourning the loss of her status in society, and she was even the mourning the loss of her personal social relationships. You see, grief isn't just something that's reserved for the death of a loved one. It's also our experience when our dreams are left unrealized. And maybe today you can directly relate to this woman 
that through singleness or through physical health issues, you are unable to have a biological child of your own. But maybe you can also recognize other griefs in your life, that you aren't going to realize your career dreams, that you're not going to get that promotion that you were dreaming about, that you haven't found a stable relationship at this stage in your life. Maybe that your partner isn't the person that you thought they were when you first got married. Maybe that your family aren't going to affirm your successes like you hoped that they would. Or maybe it's simply that you didn't make it onto the worship team or into that sports team that you were aiming for. You may be thinking, oh, these are just disappointments. But disappointments are like when your boiled egg is a bit hard or when your cinema seats are a little bit too far back. Grief is any experience in which you mourn the death of something, be that a dream, an ambition, an aspiration, or a relationship. When I had a catastrophic back injury two years ago, I really struggled to correlate my experience with grief. I was so determined that I wouldn't use the grief word because I was so thankful that I'd been rescued by this amazing surgeon and I'd been given this incredible life-changing operation. I felt that it was faithless to talk about grief. I just wanted to be grateful all the time and be so thankful that I had this amazing life-changing experience. I'd spent a lifetime playing sport and running up to my injury. I'd actually been running every day for 45 minutes or an hour. And when I had my injury, my surgeon told me that I could never run again. And I remember saying to him, oh, that's fine. I'm just glad I can still use my legs at all. The fact is, I wasn't fine. I realized I wasn't fine when I started walking on my old running route and had this real urge to put my leg out and kick the people who were running past me. <laughs> I realized I was mourning sport. I was mourning running. I was mourning exercising. I hadn't let it break in because I was so desperate just to be grateful. If I was listening to this talk, I'd be wondering, oh, are you just opening a massive can of worms here? Are you unlocking some terrible thing within me which once it's burst out will never be put back? How am I going to hold it together? Are you unleashing the floodgates and I'm just going to fall apart? Well, you see, we rarely mourn because our circumstances don't provide us with a framework within which it's safe to do so. We experience in our lives many blockages to grief. Some of the blocks we face are a difficult things around a lack of confidence. We lack understanding about grief and what it is. We think that we're just experiencing disappointments. We lack awareness of our own grief. Sometimes things just hidden within us that we've lost and we've never grieved or never really engaged with. We lack the confidence to engage with the griefs that we have experienced because we're just not quite sure how to process them. And mostly we lack support. We just don't know who to turn to when we're experiencing grief. And the reality of all these lacks is that we're blocked altogether from experiencing grief and therefore moving through grief in our lives. This woman with bleeding had been blocked from grief for 12 years. The law prohibited her from going to the temple, the place of her spiritual, uh, physical, social, and cultural healing. If she couldn't go to the temple, she couldn't see the doctor. 
If she couldn't go to the temple, she couldn't see the social worker. If she couldn't go to the temple, she couldn't see her pastor. If she couldn't go to the temple, she couldn't engage with her community. If she couldn't go to the temple, she couldn't engage with other women. If she couldn't go to the temple, she had no place in society. She was blocked from grieving because the place that she needed to be was the place that had cast her out. But you see, God's Spirit offers us the right context for recovery. In Isaiah 61, 2b and 3, he offers us the two essential supports to grief, comfort and provision. God has come to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion. Grief is like a a pressure within us. It's a a bit like this balloon. It's a a deep thing, but it's a hollow thing. It's a dark feeling that kind of builds up within us like a great pressure. Uh, but it also hollows us out from within. And we can walk around, you know, carrying this grief, yet refusing to ever truly engage with it. But the Holy Spirit comes to offer us a different sort of comfort. And his comfort, his embrace, begins to deflate the power of grief in our lives. His support, his comfort, lets out the power of grief. But... God doesn't want to leave us empty. He wants to refill us. He wants to breathe his spirit into us. Offering us this new support, this this comfort, this provision. We're comforted by his spirit and then he provides for us. And he refills us with good things. We need both his support and we need his provision. Dave, maybe you can take that from me. This is what I call CPR. It's the CPR of our spirit that actually we need comfort and provision for recovery. The spirit has come in order that we might have the comfort of him of the comfort of God. He's come to comfort those who grieve. He's come to comfort those who are brokenhearted. And he's come to provide for us. So we're not just deflated from the emptiness, the hollowness, the, the pain of grief, but we are refilled with his spirit again. And, and through his comfort and through his provision, we experience his incredible recovery. You know, Jesus provides both comfort and provision for the grieving woman in Mark 5. In verse 28, she says, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. The Greek word for healed is the word sozo, which means much more than just physical healing. It literally means to be made whole. And the woman with bleeding is a penniless, nameless outcast. Her grief was more than anemia. It was more than cramps. It was more than exhaustion, even though those were terrible and part of her experience. But she needed more than a healing. She needed a biopsychosocial, spiritual restoration in order that she might be whole. It wasn't just enough that her bleeding might stop. This woman was an outcast of outcasts. She needed to be made whole by Jesus and by his spirit. 
You know, when we carry unresolved griefs, they eat us away. They eat away at our God-given identity. You see, where there's loss, there's also blame. Internally, we begin to believe that we're responsible and we carry shame. We carry the shame of loss as much as we carry the loss itself. And this woman uh, had an illness and yet she'd become an outcast. When she approached Jesus, she approaches Jesus from behind. She doesn't want to be seen. She touches him in a crowd because she fears his condemnation. She doesn't anticipate his love. When I was traveling on the RER in France, which is like the tube but deeper underground, I had the confidence of a London traveler. I was like, I'm in France, it's the same thing. My wife who'd lived in France told me, before we got on the RER, make sure you haven't got your wallet in your back pocket. I remember thinking, that's ridiculous. I don't need to think things like that on the tube in London. I'm sure I don't need to think like things like that on the RER in France. When I got on the train with my two children and all my baggage, two friendly local French gentlemen sort of bumped me on the shoulders. I thought maybe it's a, a French greeting. And uh, so I stepped into the, the tube and I kind of, you know, looked around me at the various other traveling passengers, my companions for the, work, for the route. And as I left the train, they bumped me on the shoulders again, slightly harder than the first time. And when they bumped me again, I thought, wow, it really is a friendly place over here in Paris. I suddenly realized that, that my wallet had departed uh, that second time from my back pocket. It was now running down the platform at great speed. My wife took chase after the first gentleman who passed his wallet to his friend, who was a faster runner than he was. And she called up with him and said, hey, give me my husband's wallet back. At that point, I thought I might lose my wife as well as my wallet, so I politely stepped in and said, oh, I'm Mr. French person, I'm sure. You know, we're all Europeans here at this current time. <laughs> if I could just have my wallet back. Needless to say, I didn't get my wallet back. But it was interesting because despite being targeted, despite being a victim, I was ashamed at my loss. I felt ashamed. I felt guilty. I felt embarrassed that I had been pickpocketed. I had lost, but I felt ashamed. How much more, after 12 years of ministration, should this woman feel shame and loss? You see, the woman with bleeding lived in a culture that shamed women. The Hebrew word for menstruation is nihar, which literally means to cast out, to be banned, to be separated, to be moved away. And Roman culture, which was as much a player as, as Jewish culture in Israel at the time, was equally hostile. Roman philosopher and author Pliny the Elder blamed women's blood for turning new wine sour, making crops wither, killing grafts, drying seeds, killing bees, and rusting iron and bronze. Such was this woman's shame after 12 years of illness in this culture that she approaches Jesus in this packed crowd, avoiding his glance. 
But by avoiding Jesus' face, she also avoids her recovery. Psychologist Dr. John Townsend says, this is why God put tear ducts in our eyes. Because someone should be looking at us when we're crying. Then we know that we are not alone, that our tears are seen and heard. For this woman, bound by shame, bleeding after 12 years in this hostile culture, she came to Jesus from behind. She doesn't want to be seen. She wants to avoid. She doesn't even intend to touch his body. She just wants to touch his cloak because she believes that she would defile Jesus if she touched him. But such is her faith that she also believed, if I just touch his clothes, then I will be healed. Bowlby, who worked a lot on attachment theory after the Second World War, defines four aspects of human attachment that enable us to connect. And he said that they were proximity management, they were separation anxiety, they were a safe base and a secure haven. So this idea of proximity and loss is the kind of the central beam, but this idea of comfort and provision is the cross beam. The nature of attachment is resolved in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross, that he spread out his arms of love towards us, and he said, I will be a safe haven for you. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he was also the great provider. He said, I've got for you calling a kingdom. Come taste and see see from me. Many of us carry our griefs as shame. Maybe you carry a sense of shame around your singleness or your childlessness or your unemployment or your financial difficulties. And in our perfectionistic culture, we can try and approach Jesus in that same crowd, just hoping to touch the hem of his cloak for an immediate healing to our circumstances. And that way, maybe we can avoid the shame that we are loath to share. But Jesus hasn't come to simply restore us from our circumstances. He's come to restore us. He's come to meet with us. This is the contrast between the life of mourning lived under the crown of ashes, where your dreams are reduced to dust, and a crown of beauty, which is a sign of the restoration of your dignity. The oil of joy in Isaiah 61 was not some highbrow perfume to decant around your neck. It was a sign of honor. Your honor has been restored. It's not that what we've lost has been restored to us. It's that you've been made whole despite your loss. When Jesus realized that power had gone out of him, he could have let the woman walk away. You, know, you almost think, oh, maybe it would be more compassionate for Jesus just to let the woman go away with her physical healing. But Jesus wants to offer her more than she requested. He wants to offer her sozo, wholeness. The woman wanted to secretly take a healing from Jesus, but Jesus wanted to publicly give the woman more than she'd come for. Who touched my clothes, he asks. And she comes trembling in fear. Such was the... Levitical value to women's bleeding that 
A man would be defiled. A rabbi would be defiled being being touched by a woman who was experiencing her period. She comes trembling in fear. Her grief has been exposed to the crowd. And no doubt her sense of shame has been multiplied tenfold. She falls at Jesus' feet, shaking, expecting a punishment. She's carrying the spirit of heaviness, which is so common to those who grieve. She's touched the great rabbi's clothes. Surely she's defiled him. Yet Jesus removes the cloak of grief from her shoulders and he replaces it with a garment of praise. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. You know when Jesus calls her daughter, it lifts the grief of loss and it gives her the comfort of family. This daughter has a father. When he commends her faith and says, your faith has healed you, he lifts spiritual shame and he gives us spiritual honor. When he says, you've been healed, he announces her healing to the community around her, which reestablishes her place in society and in community. Effectively, he's enabled her to come back in. When he commissions her to go, he's given her the dignity of a calling. She can leave this place with a purpose. And then he establishes her spiritual countenance by saying that she can go in peace, something that she hasn't experienced for these 12 years. And then he commands a freedom from suffering, which is more of a direct call to those around her, those who've excluded her, those who've cast her aside. Go and be freed from your suffering. Not just the suffering within, but the suffering without. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. This is the nature of the kingdom, and this is the nature of the king. He was on his way to heal the daughter of one of the most powerful, one of the most influential people in the region at the time, Jairus, whose 12-year-old daughter was facing death. And yet he stops to heal the most unknown, the most powerless, the most penniless woman in society at the time, an unnamed and an unknown woman from 12 years of bleeding. He's on his way to raise a 12-year-old from death, but before he releases an old woman from 12 years of spiritual, emotional, and social death. I want you to know today that God is ready to take a divine diversion for you and for your grief. You might not think that you're the most important person in the room. You might not think that you're the worthy person in the room. You might not think that you're the big spiritual person in the room. But God has come to take a divine diversion into your life to set you free, to give you spiritual wholeness, to offer you sozo. And he's inviting you today to look him in the face. You see, your griefs might be as hidden as this woman. They may be as secret as this woman's. They may seem as socially insignificant as this woman's did at the time, but they are urgent to God. They are significant to God, and they are worthy of his touch. More than that, God's supernatural work in the life of one has a supernatural work in the life of many. 
in 1 Corinthians 1 27 it says God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong and oh boy did God choose to shame the world through this woman because you know this woman and her encounter with Jesus transformed the experience of every single woman in this place tonight and every single woman in this city and every single woman in the western world Because as a result of Jesus' interaction with the woman with bleeding, the Greek and Syriac churches chose to protect women from religious and social exclusion during their periods. This happened immediately within the establishment of the early church. These churches chose to protect women from social exclusion. And as a result, the Roman world changed its view about women and bleeding. And as the Roman world was Christianized, so women's experience in seasons of their period was also transformed. No longer were they excluded. Because of this penniless, pitiless, unknown woman, God changed the world. He changed the experience that you're having in the pews today. In 601, Pope Gregory, the leader of the church in the known world at the time, universally stated that women should not be kept out of church or away from Holy Communion during their periods. Why? Because Jesus said, you're clean, you're mine. There's no shame that's bounding you anymore. There's no exclusion for you. The spirit of the sovereign Lord was upon Jesus to provide for those who grieve in Zion. The temple of God could not and would not be out of reach for any Not for the poor, not for the marginalized, not for the stigmatized, not for the sick, not for the mentally ill, not for the disabled, and not for the woman with bleeding, and not for you tonight. And the temple of God, Jesus Christ, he's here. He calls us for a face-to-face encounter. He invites us to receive and embrace. He longs for you to bring your griefs to him because he's got comfort and provision for you. He's got everything that you need. And his arms are stretched out wide. He wants to look you in the face. He invites you out of the crowd. He longs to restore you.